Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So, just just wondering, where the hell are our leaders? The country is in the grip of a climate catastrophe, a disaster that has descended particularly hard on Texas. And where was the junior senator from Texas, that great moral philosopher and constitutional scholar, Rafael Cruz, who prefers that we call him Ted? Oh, Senator Ruff was on his way to Cancun for a family vacation. I'm sure you've heard this. In Texas, many of his constituents were trapped in their homes without power, heat, or even clean water. But hey, it was 84 degrees in Cancun. How could he resist? The dereliction here is breathtaking. So bad, even Fox News couldn't stand it. In case you can't read that smaller headline under the one saying Ted Cruz flew to Cancun amid a Texas power crisis, it says millions in Texas without power, at least 30 dead. What were you thinking, Senator? Abandoning your post in the midst of a crisis. Now, remember, this isn't only a natural disaster. This is a failure of government, the state government of Texas, to be very specific, the Republican-run state government of Texas, to be even more specific. They run the power. They, they run the power grid in Texas and for a generation have kept it separate from the rest of the national power supply. God bless that sovereign state of Texas. I wish I could heap all my scorn just on Senator Cruz, but I expect that Republicans to act like government doesn't matter. That's what they do. To act like going Cancun makes sense in the midst of a crisis. That is the epitome of their philosophy and their campaigning since Reagan. Undermine and starve government until it fails. And then argue for smaller government and privatize the rest while their donor pals collect no-bid contracts. Hello, Texas. The power grid is failing because you failed to look after it, because you starved it, because you killed it. I wish I could just blame Ted Cruz and his band of Texas Republicans right now. But honestly, where is President Biden? This is at least as big as Katrina or Sandy. Homeless on the streets, freezing. People don't have access to water. And FEMA hasn't sent food and blankets and they send just a few generators. That's, that, that barely feels better than Trump throwing paper towels to Puerto Ricans after Hurricane Maria. This is a moment that President Biden should seize to help rebuild the faith in the purpose and the capacity of the government to help people. I get that his administration is going to be, well, more low-key than the last, but we still need to hear from the president in moments of crisis. And this is a moment of crisis, not just for the people of Texas, for every one of us, because this is the future if we don't start responding. And we've been saying that since Hurricane Sandy, since Hurricane Katrina, how many hurricanes, how many, how many tornadoes, how many earthquakes, how many fires, how many houses need to fall into the ocean? How many floods? The power grid failed because it was never built for extreme weather of climate change. And because the Republican state government for 30 years didn't take care of it or prepare for what was coming. I'm glad that the United States is rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Diplomacy is, is lovely, but this is reality smacking us in the face like an ice storm because it is an ice storm where it should not be. I'm sure the White House wishes this reckoning with the climate crisis was a year from now after they passed their pandemic rescue package and the rest of their 100 days wish list after everybody is vaccinated. 
But as they say, life is what happens while you're making plans. The president still needs to deliver the $1.9 trillion rescue package. He still needs to get everyone the vaccine. But his agenda accelerated this week on the climate front, not like we didn't know that that was coming. The White House needs to face it and respond now while everyone is paying attention, not later when nobody cares. I know it's cold out, but this is no time to be frozen in place politically. You need to show the world what happens with failed Republican ideas. And this is several failures in one. Their denial of climate change, their addiction to fossil fuels and to the campaign cash of the fossil fuel industry, their refusal to invest in a resilient electric infrastructure, their belief that the market can fix everything by magic, and their absolute alternate reality in dealing with this. Mr. President, make it a learning experience for the country. You might even win over some Republicans who are frozen right now. You can at least start by schooling Ted Cruz. God knows he has it coming. And Governor Abbott, who would rather blame windmills than his own party for this calamity. Be a leader, President Biden. Explain what it will take to address this. Show us that this isn't Trump's America anymore. Show us we have a president with an attention span longer than Sean Hannity's show. Show us that bipartisanship isn't about being nice. It's about being real. Show us all how to rise above Twitter and Fox News and MSNBC so we can solve what may be the most complicated challenge the country will be facing, is facing, the climate crisis. Right now, you should head down to Texas. I don't buy the idea that your presence will interfere with recovery efforts. By the way, that was the excuse that both Donald Trump's fans said and George W. Bush's. But if you'd rather... Send President, Vice President uh, Harris. She was a senator from California who just last year, the power grid, of course, crumbled under an extreme weather event. So surely she understands this challenge. We will all need to understand this challenge. And it is your responsibility now, Mr. V Mr. President, to make sure of it. It is your responsibility to speak up. The fact that you haven't on the third day of this crisis says a lot. There is no time for freezing, literally freezing, political, being politically frozen and, and freezing because of the climate crisis. You have to do something. The least you can do is do an address before the country and talk about these issues and then get on a plane or have Vice President Harris get on a plane and go respond. It is not a distraction having you there. If anything, the cameras will all focus. Every single cable news show will focus on what you say and how eager and urgent addressing climate change is in your administration. We have a terrific show for you today. We have Chris Rabb, Representative Rabb here, and so is Ren Chowdhury to talk, talk about this week's news, a lot of it. And right after the break, we will have the one and only Professor Harvey Kay, who is, of course, the biographer of Thomas Paine and FDR and an expert on, uh, I'd say, leaders dealing with crises. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Of course, straight out of the Nomi Key Show chat. <laughs> 
That's what he's known for on this show. We have Professor Harvey Kay. He is the prof- he was a former professor, professor emeritus, I should say, at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, uh, and he is a uh, an author who is the author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, which was one of our book club uh, options. And he's also the author of The Fight for Four Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, uh, FDR and Democracy, and I think like 14 books in total, if that's correct. Am I wrong? What number did you just say? 14? Well, 17, I think. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) You asked me. No, I know. All I right, all right. I'm to piss you off today. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about this crisis. <laughs> we have a crisis in leadership, I believe. I think, you know, my opening, I don't know if you had a chance to see it. I'm, um, to me, this is such a revealing moment. I, I, you know, I think the least that Biden could do right now, and I don't want to put all the attention on Biden, of course, Ted Cruz getting on a flight to Cancun and the Republicans creating this disaster. Yes. But I mean, it would be really nice if we had like Democrats calling that out, not just like the media on the internet. If we had like, you know, Joe Biden, our actual president, who's uh, to, to say, to give a speech. I mean, the least he could do is give a speech. Or how about Chris Christie calling him out? Do you remember Chris Christie went to the beach when nobody else was supposed to? Of course, of course. I do remember uh, being there for Sandy. No, but I mean, the reality is, is, is um, it's so egregious what we're seeing. This, to me, this is such a metaphor for our political state. You have a Republican Party that is just so incredibly out of touch and self, uh, self-obsessed. I mean, it's, this is beyond narcissism uh, this is, he's, Ted Cruz is revealing himself to be a sociopath. The fact that he thought, not just that it was okay to go to Cancun, but that he would just, nothing would happen. No one would care. No one would catch him. Just in the middle of this crisis. So that's the Republicans, right? And then you have Joe Biden. Frozen. That, I mean, what a metaphor for the moment we're living in. Have you seen okay. anything like this before? Well, I'll start off with my silly observation for the day. Okay. My first silly observation is, I think Ted Cruz knows they've discovered his role in the insurrection in Washington, and he's leaving the country before they catch up with him. That's one possibility. But on a more serious note, you know, I don't know how many of the folks who are with us right now saw the Milwaukee town hall on Tuesday night, Monday night, the, the one on CNN. CNN, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, it was amazing to me. It wasn't exactly frozen, but it was amazing to me that the most, the most telling moment was when they asked, it was a young man or woman asked about student debt and he, and he figured he was gonna show how, this was, maybe it was gonna be his Bill Clinton sister soldier moment or something, right? Where he, he says to her, 10,000, 10,000, right? And he makes a remark about well, you know, I, basically what he's saying is I don't want to be responsible for clearing the debts of people who went to Harvard and Yale. I'm not even sure people quite understood what he was probably trying to do at that moment. I think that was his populist moment almost. I mean, ultimately what I was going to say is that you're looking very skeptically. And my point ultimately is that it was a terrible town hall, a terrible one. The, the only time that, you, that, the, that the liberal media had something to really grab hold of was when he said they were going to go big. This was not the time. This was not, well. That's after he told the student, "We're not going to go higher than ten thousand dollars on the question of student debt." 
So once again, it's a moment where, and I think I've said this to you before, what Biden is really good at is contradiction, contradictions, maybe even contradicting himself along the way. And clearly, you know, he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not leading right now. You know, I think we're 30 days into this administration, right? Just about. 30 days. And if we, people think in terms of 100 days, so like what, are we, we're 30% along the way. And I don't think anybody feels like we're anything more than an interregnum right now. I mean, this is, uh, I, I know people are like, well, what did you expect? It's Joe Biden. He's a neoliberal. It's not that we didn't expect. We know who Joe Biden is. We know he's been partnering with the fracking industry and the Democratic Party is just completely drowning in fossil fuel money. We understand who he is. We understand the, the, the resistance. I mean, I know because I was on the platform committee. We know the, the resistance the Democratic Party has to getting off of their donors' money, which is holding up legislation, really transformative legislation that could save this country and potentially this world. We get that. The difference is he's just absent. It's not like, okay, I'm going to give a very weird example given this moment because um, of the scandal he's in, but you know who's really good? I'm not saying that, uh, listen, I disagree with him. If anybody knows anything about me, I'm no fan of Andrew Cuomo, but you know, he's, he's really good at not being absent. So he like makes people, and it's, it's been very effective in his career thus far. And that the, the, the state is like on, you know, literally falling apart, literally falling apart. Yep. And he comes out and he's just like, he's there. He shows up and he makes this certain section of the of, of folks feel better. I'm not saying that's what Biden does, but he's just, I'm like, where is he? What is he doing? You know, I'm not asking you to say we're getting off fossil fuels tomorrow. I don't expect that. I should say I am asking him to do it. He's not going to he's not going to I don't expect him to do this. But the least he could do is give a speech on Texas right now from the Oval Office or have Kamala Harris do it and just point fingers at the Republicans in Texas. That's that's the least. They lose nothing out of that. And yet nothing. Okay, apparently he's had a series of meetings. Now, this is the part of the problem of lack of leadership. He's having a series of meetings with labor people and business people and others, and sometimes mixed groups of labor and business people. And he may be under the assumption that he only has to speak behind closed doors. But basically what he says will come out beyond the closed doors. So, for example, we've heard, we've heard I've heard from any number of people in labor that, in fact, he's making overtures in meetings that are indicating his commitment to labor. However, in a meeting the other day, apparently, which may well have included labor and social movements other than labor, maybe perhaps even environmental groups, and there was a sense in the meeting, you know, that he was not going to go in the green direction. In other words, having told the labor people national infrastructure was really important to him and they were going to go big on that, he apparently tended to doubt, you know, he sort of kept his distance from, from any kind of green kind of direction. I'm using that in a sort of grand metaphorical sense. The other thing is, this is, this is really, really, really bugging me, is that if you're going to be a leader in the United States, and I'm now thinking back to the likes, obviously, of FDR, everyone listening knows of my fascination for FDR and my work on FDR, one thing FDR did is he knew how to speak to Americans even before he took action in order to encourage Americans to expect 
big things. And he didn't just say, we're going to go big. Okay. He didn't do that. What he did is he laid out a series of, I don't, you can call it an agenda, but some kind of, some kind of vision. And right now, and I, you're, I did hear, I, I think I was listening to most of what you said before I came on. And that is that why not be out front right now? And instead of just saying to people behind closed doors or in a, in a town hall, we're going to go big. Why not actually lay out the project? Lay out the project and indicate a lot what that might well entail. That's first of all. And the other thing I, I, we can come back to it is they're they're sort of traumatized right now. The Democrats out of fear of cinema and mansion. And I think you know I, I think they've got to learn how not to fear them, but to, but to call their bluff, right? Yes. I mean, listen, it's 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 absolutely incredible to me that two senators could put so much fear into the president of the United States. Can you imagine Johnson being beholden to, literally beholden, frozen by two senators and frankly, the country? I mean, how would how would Johnson have dealt with this? I know that's not necessarily, you're not a scholar of how Johnson. Would he have but... dealt with this? I'll tell you exactly how he would have dealt with this. He would have, he would have invited them to the White House, probably not, not a woman necessarily in the sense he would have invited her, but he might not have done to her what he would easily be happy to do to Manchin. Although Man- I assume Manchin is probably a fairly large guy. But Johnson would literally back you into a wall and twist your arm, probably yes. with the ind- indication that if you don't do it, I'll break your arm. But he did something else as well. He could make promises. He knew how, as a, because he had been a senator who had been, if you like, an apprentice in Congress, to FDR, he also knew how to make deals. And what I don't get is this. I mean, actually, in this vein, I want to say something about Biden that is really worrisome. And I think we talked about this some months ago, when he's always seems to be more willing to raise his voice to progressives, to go arrogant towards progressives, and always sort of not, if not physically, metaphorically reach out to Republicans, to reach out to the right. And as a consequence right now, my, my, I, I can imagine this moment where he's going to go on TV and he, like that thing the other night at the town hall where a young person was obviously looking for some indicator that he's going to go above 10,000. And he was more ready to tell her where, or him, we're only going to go to 10,000. But it, it's and like, he, he is he his- more primed to be antagonistic to the left yeah. and welcoming to the right. And, and that's worrisome, too, about leadership, by the way, at this moment, in this crisis. Where, I mean, this crisis is a crisis upon a crisis upon a crisis. Yes, yes. And I think, I mean, I want to clarify one point. I don't think it's about acquiescing or, or, or you know, uh, being more likely to work with the right. I think it's that he, he it's about elites, aka senators, and working people. You know, I didn't look at that woman like she I didn't know if she's progressive or not. I think she just is buried in student loan debt. And she's just thinking, how do I survive in the middle of all these crises when I still have to cut a check for student loans or they're coming to get me and I might lose my house and I might go default to my credit card, you know, uh, go into bankruptcy over all my other debts. But I can't with, you know, it's because I have to pay for my student debts first. So to me, it reminded me um, it was cruel. It was cruel how he responded. And it reminded me of when Bill Clinton got into a few altercations uh, in, in, in 2008 with Hillary Clinton when she ran and also in 2016 um, 
there was one in particular with a veteran, uh, I think it was at a diner and he was just so a veteran approached him and he would not give up and he was debating him and he was basically like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I mean, it was, and then of course uh, with black lives matter activists, but there's a cruel cruelty. And what it revealed to me was these are not people who are willing to work with the Republic. These are elitists. They're willing to work with the elites. They're willing to cut deals with elites that they know, I mean, I think that Biden would sit down with Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders is still part of his little elite Senate circle, um, just as much yeah. as, I mean, yeah. obviously yeah. he's going to partner with others. But yeah. well, let's try to imagine for a moment what it would be if he let's try to imagine if he were going to try to disprove our sense of him. OK, because I think your reference to his inability to engage working people. In spite of his being, you know, by the way, he was supposed to be, you know, Joe from Scranton, uh, Sarah Nelson makes it clear. Rhetorically speaking, he is the most pro-labor president that we can probably remember, rhetorically speaking. But to be truly engaging of working people, here's what, here's what he could have done, okay? So, for example, had they allowed someone in the audience to ask What's your position on the labor movement going forward? Or even whatever it might be, they could have said, do you have any idea as to how your administration is going to address inequality? Something that could empower him to say this. He could have said, I think that every worker who has an opportunity to join a labor union should. Straight out. Now, and by the way, he's pretty much said behind closed doors he's committed to labor. The trick is for him to say it on national television. Let people know where his administration is going to stand. Don't tell labor union leaders who already have membership. Tell people who want a union, okay? That, that's key. You know, FDR back in the 30s, whether he said it this directly or not, basically enabled the AFL to issue posters that said, if I worked in a factory, I'd join a union. Okay. His own wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, joined a union when she started writing a column for, forget the name of the women's magazine, but she started writing a column for them. In addition to others, she joined the, the Journalist Guild, which was a, you know, a labor union, probably a fairly progressive labor union given the 30s. This family of the Roosevelts, the husband and wife together, they send signals to people as to the kinds of things they hoped Americans would do because FDR and Eleanor, but especially FDR, the president, knew the more Americans got organized, the more empowered he would be. And indeed, at this point, do we know if Joe Biden, any more than Barack Obama, any more than Bill Clinton, any more than Jimmy Carter, really has, if you like, a kind of faith, a confidence, and a commitment to working people beyond leave it to us. We'll take care of everything. And they didn't take care of anything. You know, and then simultaneously, because we're, we're, we're talking about um, this crisis with climate, I, you know, the, the, the climate community, climate activist community and the labor community haven't always uh, gotten along for a lot of different reasons, um, preserving jobs and in industries that go against, uh, that exacerbate climate change. And there's unions, some unions, but I think they're starting to warm up. And, and I mean, obviously, that's why the Green New Deal is so so smart. But I feel like this is partly why Biden's frozen. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, this is I mean, ultimately, I, I've said this before on the show that the Democratic Party 
time and time again, rules by committee. They're slow to respond to things because they have to go back to their constituents. When I say constituencies, I don't mean their constituents. I mean their donors and their little lobbyist people who right. are in their ears and try to come up with the best way out. But three, four, five days a week later is not leadership. And, um, you know, we saw that after COVID when, when it's, it's hard to remember to, a year back, believe it or not, but there was a slow response by the Biden campaign to the pandemic, if you recall. Um, meanwhile, again, Andrew Cuomo just got on TV. He didn't know what he was talking, clearly, he was doing clearly. A job, Andrew. Yep, he, even as he's lying about one thing, he's out on TV pretending he's gonna be the next president of the United States because he can take the leadership on COVID. Yes. I'm not saying you pull a Cuomo, but he didn't care about, he like, he, I guess he just has an internal sense of, of, of what his constituencies, his donors want. So it didn't really matter, but, um, this is such a problem. This money in, in the Democratic Party, the, the, the conflicts of interest in the party, the reason why I keep bringing this up over and over again, why I literally took bullets for it and was smeared for it and attacked for it and all the different, is because this is the moment when those people are strangling our leaders. It's not just because we can't get certain agenda items passed. It's because now we can't get anything passed because two or three interests are circling around mansion and, and cinema and figuring out like this is their way to hold it up. It doesn't matter if you won the Senate. It doesn't matter if we literally spent a billion dollars uh, getting Joe Biden elected and you know several hundreds of millions getting Ossoff and, uh, and <coughs> Warnock elected. But now uh, these interests, just like they don't let any reforms happen that are significant enough in the Democratic Party and, and it's, it's uh, questionably legal, they still, you know, to, to make sure that Joe Biden's elected, now they're here doing it this. They will, it reminds me of these fiscal control boards, um, you know, whether it's in Detroit or, or Puerto Rico or back in New York in what was it, the 70s or 80s, whatever it was. Um, they just, it, like you have all this democracy. You could have a legislature and a governor and you could, you know, a, you could have a city council. You have all this democracy, you pass these bills that reform things and are really going to change change the landscape of the city or the island or wherever. And then the fiscal control board, which is completely appointed, oversees it and usually reflects some sort of corporate Wall Street interest. And then they're just like, that's so cute. Now we're in charge. <laughs> and that's how the Democratic Party is run. And that's how we get Joe Biden as the nominee. And that's how we get uh, Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema holding. It's procedural holdups because the people in charge of those procedures are the unelected corporate-like segments of the population. I, 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 I just think this is like such a bad point. I think this is a really big moment right now. I think this is, um, if this is the way the Biden administration is going to be run, I mean, what, what do you, do you think that this is like the, I don't want to say the Katrina moment, but. Well, I mean, in terms of what's going on in the South, you know, look, I mean, it's interesting to live in Wisconsin and see Wisconsin like conditions strike the South and, and, Seriously, to see, you know, that third of the nation be utterly devastated by all of this. And then to ha and then it's then to have the governor of Texas tell us that it was the, the, the wind turbines, which only represent 10 percent of all of the power there. And he couldn't bother to mention that the gas lines froze, too. I mean, it's all that kind of stuff. So, OK, look, I, I think right now 
Joe Biden's presidency, not pre the Democratic Party's hold on Congress is hanging in the balance. And the only thing that may save them is the utter incompetence, the fact that it's Texas led by Republicans. But, you know, all of that aside, I want Democrats, Biden included, or Harris, let Harris do it. I mean, hell, she was, a, you know, she was a, a, a dogged what, uh, state attorney general, district attorney, all those kinds of things. Let these people go on the warpath right now in favor of the $15 an hour minimum wage in terms of the pandemic, okay? Instead, they're going to be marked as having been the ones who were willing to defend $1,400 when they promised to get Ossoff and Warnock, the people you just mentioned, elected in Georgia. Call in Manchin and say, we're calling your bluff. Let Schumer... Say, hey, we're calling your bluff. You, you, two, you two want to block $15 an hour minimum wage, which won't even go into effect for like four to five years on a full-scale basis. You got to look back. You go back to West Virginia and find out how your, how your constituents feel about this. That's what I, I mean, call do. the bluff, okay? Well, here, here, just on the, on the Schumer point, I'm like, you know, everyone's like, look at Schumer. He's, 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 he's moving progressive on all these issues. I mean- uh, even internally in New York, I've been watching some like community board uh, meetings that he's he's attended and he's leaned in more progressive. But at the end of the day, I want to see Schumer strong arm Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. That's all great. I'm really happy he's pushing for $50,000 uh, elimination of student debt. Fantastic. I don't know how realistic it is. Maybe it's just Not. posturing. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe, um, you know, all these other things that he's doing is posturing because he's a very skilled politician, but I don't care. I want you, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, my first internship, to strong arm really? Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin because that's what you're supposed to do. You're the boss now. Yeah. You know, I, I just want to say, and this is a sidebar that's relevant, okay? So today, Ayanna Presley and her team have announced a bill for a guaranteed federal job, okay? And, and that, by the way, could, must be talked about. They must line up a lot of, if you like, folks to, to support it, promote it, because it is so popular an idea among both Democrats and Republicans alike. And even if it's not part of the pandemic question, it is clearly part of the infrastructure question. So what, what, what I'm saying with that is, there are Democrats with ideas and with programs. Uh, I, I know that Bernie's part of the circle now, okay, in a way he never has been, but I sure hope that Bernie thinks in a more parliamentary-like way at times and speaks up as the chair of the budget committee and not simply as an underling below Schumer, Schumer yeah. and Biden, okay? Because if you can get people in the House and people in the Senate who want to make the case for progressive action within a pandemic initiative and within a national infrastructure, you've got to, as I've always said to you, you have got to cultivate, the not the base, you've got to cultivate working people's expectations and aspirations, or aspirations and expectations in that order, in order to bring pressure to bear. Let them know that you will not put up with another Obama presidency. Harvey Kay, you're the best. Thanks. Thank you for always joining us and for being Happy my therapist. You know that. Happy to. Thank <laughs> so you. the best therapy is history, in my opinion. 
my, know, that's... The, the history is that I and my colleagues write, not just any history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not okay. like Thomas Friedman's history or someone well, thank else. Thank you. <laughs> uh, just want to say Invisible Queer uh, sends a message saying, note to self, read FDR on democracy. You might have some more book sales. Professor Harvey Kay, author of FDR on Democracy and many other books, 16 other books, I believe, uh, if I'm correct. Uh, he yeah, authored is, and edited. Authored and edited. Authored and edited. Beautiful. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing you next time. You bet. Stay warm. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We will be right back with our fabulous panel, Rep Rab and Run Chowdhury. Got lots to discuss. We're going to try to fit it in today because we got to cut out early today because of me. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Now's the time for you to smash that like button, jump in the comments, click subscribe, join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can also sign up for our book club right there. Uh, I see Arun Chowdhury. He's a political filmmaker. He's in Berlin. I know I know his backgrounds now. Uh, <laughs> and Rep Rab, half of Rep Rab, if he's leaning in right without the... <laughs> no! Uh, Rip Rab, representing the 200th District of Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining today, guys. We've got lots of stories to run through. First story uh, that I want to talk about, because there's two stories I want to talk about you guys, because each of you have, um, I saw these stories and I thought of you, uh, but Rep Rab mentioned this one. So there's a story out right now on ABC News saying, let's local governments across the country take on the issues of reparations. Congress will be holding a hearing on the study of reparations on Wednesday, I know Rep. Rab, you got some thoughts on this. What you thinking? Yeah, well, um, they had a. I'm sorry about uh, disappearing on you like this. I'm trying. <laughs> I feel like a phantom. <laughs> can you hear me? All right. We can hear He's you. He's a real human. I am. I, <laughs> he is I'm, a real. It's not I'm a not hologram. A yes. Um, so I actually uh, uh, watched the virtual hearing on HR 40. Uh, I guess it was yesterday. And it was bizarre. Um, so uh, Republicans who are opposed to reparations, um, they, they found black people who are opposed to it. Uh, and it was it was the most cringeworthy thing I've seen. Uh, Herschel Walker, who I was a big f fan of as as as, yeah. a, as a boy, uh, uh, Heisman uh, Trophy uh, awardee, uh, turned uh, batshit crazy uh, conservative. Uh, well, maybe he didn't turn that way. Maybe that's how he always was. I only knew him on the uh, on the football field, but uh, it, it was it was um, interesting in in a number of ways. One is that uh, that uh, white Republicans um, and a black Republican whose name I, I, I escapes me probably on purpose were uh, trying to find <laughs> trying to find ways to to uh, rationalize why reparations. Uh, wasn't appropriate for black people, um, even though it was appropriate for many other groups, including Japanese Americans, survivors of the Holocaust, um, uh, folks who have, were forcibly sterilized, who were with intellectual disabilities in North Carolina, on and on and on. Reparations is not new. As I like to remind people, it is not specifically or exclusively for black people, for slavery nor is it um, definitively always a cash payment. Reparations are what we choose um, for uh, what we seek to uh, remedy, right? And it could, it can happen, it can uh, uh, materialize in any number of ways. There's no one way to do it. And uh, it, so it was cringeworthy, but it was also powerful because um, 
uh, Representative Cohen from Tennessee uh, was a very um, uh, interesting um, ally of, of reparations. Um, and to hear um, white people talk about reparations and why it's important, um, not just for a black audience, you know, yeah. and from a black church, but in their job um, on the federal level, I think uh, is important because, you know, I've said previously on this show, um, these are conversations that white people need to have with other white people. Um, if you talk about issues of whiteness, white privilege, structural inequality, um, all of these intersecting things are outgrowths of capitalism and American capitalism as we know it um, uh, is essentially what created um, slavery and, and whiteness and, uh, and systemic racism. It's all connected. So you can't have a crit meaningful critique of capitalism without talking about reparations. You can't have anything that deals with racial disparities. Just saying racial equity is not enough. And I know you're going to be talking about uh, student debt uh, 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 forgiveness. And that is one of the biggest things that, uh, that accounts for um, income and, and wealth inequality based on race. And um, so you can't have any of these conversations without talking about reparations. It was not well promoted in, in mainstream media. Um, and that, and particularly during Black History Month, if there was any opportunity to do it and do it right, um, they, they could have. But this is, uh, this is a, a div divisive subject, as many people construe it. I don't believe it's a divisive one. I think it actually allows people to have meaningful conversations and talk about how we have a shared fate and how everyone benefits by addressing um, the original sin of our nation. But it, it goes against the 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 business model, obviously, of mainstream media and uh, in many uh, the leadership of both parties. I, I'm curious to think, and, and either one of you can jump in. Um, how did I mean? You mentioned uh, the one representative from from Tennessee, but uh, language wise, I mean, how do you think they did in in appealing to their colleagues who I'm going to guess most of them never had a conversation or know much about reparations. Um, you know, it's, it's a starting point and I don't know really who the real audience is. You know, when I'm, uh, in a hearing, uh, in, in my Republican controlled house of representatives in Pennsylvania, um, it's to me, the audience is not the 15 Republican colleagues of mine out of the 25 who serve on a given committee. Um, it's the much larger audience. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, other stakeholders, journalists, my constituents, voters, some much wider audience. So when I'm making my comments, I'm talking really to the camera more so than my colleagues, because we only, if, if a hearing is an hour, uh, hour and a half, it's not a real conversation. It's just people talking, right? Scoring points most of the time. The real work is in the hallways, on the house floor, mm -hmm in between session days where you're operating ideally in good faith with your colleagues who are either ignorant about a subject or resistant because they don't have the information they need to make an informed um, you know, assessment of the situation. And for me, I start with Democrats because I don't have all of the, my uh, black colleagues on board with my reparations bill. I certainly don't have all of my house democratic colleagues on board. So there's a, you know, there's a civic literacy piece to this, why reparations matter, what it is, what it's not, and how it can help our, our collective uh, kind of goals. And that work has to happen 
um, in between these hearings, in between election cycles and so forth. And people are too afraid to do it most of the time. And I think you make a good point. It has to be aimed at lawmakers as much as anyone else. I feel like the public is ahead of lawmakers here for the very good reason that when you're in government and an eye-popping amount of money is talked about, you think about, well, how do we make sure this is fair? How can we put a spin on this? How can we? And we forget what people know, which is that when you owe somebody money, you don't get to tell them what they're going to do with it. Right. <laughs> so I think this is one of those things where That's actually the going. kitchen table talk should be adopted by the government on like a budget. It's sort of the history of this country in terms of austerity and other forms of, of starving people of everything. Um, let's let's just pivot for a second because there's uh, on a completely different subject, but I know I know both of you have a lot of thoughts about this. Destructive in different ways. Uh, the Lincoln Project is under fire right now. <laughs> I knew you were going to have What's the Lincoln Project? I hated them before it was cool. I know. I knew you did. The Lincoln Project uh, was the group formed little more than a year ago by a band of anti-Trump Republicans is facing calls to shut down amid allegations of a toxic and abusive culture at the organization. So just as a reminder to folks who are not following the consultant industrial complex the way, say, Arun and I do uh, for sport, the Lincoln Project... Uh, were they they built they did these beautiful ads right um anti-trump ads raised a lot of money off of it from democrats and many folks afterwards uh thought okay well they're going to now use this money and these lists and this data to pull democrats away maybe i don't know what their strategy is but what kills me about this is it's the cultural issue that breaks apart the lincoln project not the fact that it's corrupt I mean, arguably corrupt, I shouldn't say that. It's not like legally corrupt. Unfortunately, this is all it's very at illegal. best ineffective and at worst corrupt. We'll just say it's somewhere in that spectrum. I think that's fair. So, so I mean, what, one another one just, you know, jump, just, they'll just start another one. Like someone else will start one. It doesn't have to be the Lincoln Project. They'll start something else. No? But it won't have Trump. So I, I do think that, you know, Yes, it sucks when you only can get cone on tax fraud or whatever. And certainly I don't want to compare financial malfeasance to like what sounds like some serious abuse happening. But like we will take any reason to pull the Lincoln project down because like it's Coke. The next thing will be RC. Like it just will not be the same. It will not be infused with that anti-Trump magic. It will not be welcomed into the resistance.com, like whatever it all is. So I feel pretty good about this one collapsing, even knowing that, as you say, this space will be filled up with more folks. Why are they so dangerous? What is it about them that really gets under people's skin? Well, I mean, what's so dangerous for me is that people who loved the commercials um, thought that because they were anti-Trump that they were somehow good. Um, That's a really low bar to, to have enough wisdom to... Um, despise Donald Trump, like, and I think people were so starved for someone who weren't Democrats to to say what was so obvious that they gave them a lot more credit than they deserved, particularly since the the high production value and the cleverness of their you know their commercials. People who were um, you know unfamiliar with the lay of the land gave them a lot more credit than they deserved, and that's very troubling because. They never opposed um, his agenda for ridiculous tax cuts for the rich or uh, hyper conservative appointments to uh, the judiciary. Um, And those are the the most dangerous things 
um, structurally and uh, in the short term and long term for people who liked the commercials because they associated all those bad things with the best villain there is, which, you know, was Donald Trump. But um, my enemy's enemy is not necessarily my friend. No, you're right. And the heart of the message is what's wrong, which is the Lincoln Project says loud and clear with one voice, America is already great. That is like, that is what it's here to say. And it's a very seductive message, especially, right. you know, for, you know, more well-off Democrats, maybe folks like that. This is a very seductive message. That means that a lot of work that we all know needs to be done doesn't necessarily need to be done right away. And, and they were, I mean, the, the reality is, is it was about power. They were pissed because they weren't the ones in power. They weren't part of Trump's inner circle. They were the Bush people. They were the, you know, they were the Bush people. They were the CIA Bush people, and they were the Bush senior and presidency people. They were the Reagan, some of the Reagan And people. very much the military-industrial complex yeah. mouthpiece in Washington. Right. And, you know, American exceptionalism transcends party, right? There are a lot of people who want to believe in American concept, uh, exceptionalism, and American greatness because the promise it holds perhaps for them and their families, like why am I working so hard in, a, in the only country I know if it's, it, it's a civilization in decline at best, right? That's a tough pill to swallow if you've been raised to believe everything else, regardless of where you are on the political, political spectrum. So in a way, um, it, it's, a, it, it's an interesting lure to bring people into because there are people who are um, you know, slightly left of center, who may believe in American exceptionalism because they have no point of reference and the rhetoric works, you know? I mean, it doesn't just work on the right. And uh, we have to question those narratives, right? Pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, which we saw a little parody about, right? That was Horatio Algiers, who was a second generation Harvard graduate. So he pulled himself up by his own Ferragamos, uh, <laughs> we, we have to understand <laughs> who creates who creates these stories. Okay, so on a similar topic, I think it's uh, this one is 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 the story that really got me because I, uh, for folks who watch the show, you're aware of this. I've been you know for the last few years doing a lot of work on the island of Puerto Rico, working on. Um, I was there reporting after the storm, and uh, I I when I was there in two thousand. 2018 at that point, I uh, was covering these guys, uh, the cryptocurrency guys who decided they started doing this before, to be fair, they, they were doing this before the storm uh, because of the tax policies in Puerto Rico. Um, they decided to go and move to the island. And of course, after the storm, a whole other form of the cryptocurrency guys uh, went to the island and just started buying up the island, like whatever they could get away with because of these two acts, uh, Act 20 and 22, which are extraordinary tax breaks. Um, and this, what was so egregious about this is this is happening as hundreds of thousands and it's well over a million now of, of, of Puerto Ricans left the island because they didn't have power or water or, or, or pharmaceuticals. And these billionaires and cryptocurrency uh, entrepreneurs were like, let me go there. So this guy, Logan Paul, I don't know if you know who he is. I wish I didn't yes, know who he was. I have a son. <laughs> yeah. You have a son. Oh no, get him away from it. Get him away from it. Logan Paul uh, had a couple of controversies one was uh, because he went to this suicide forest in Japan and filmed it. That was a few years ago. Logan has announced, uh, this just drives me crazy, but it's about a bigger story here. He's announced he's moving to the island of Puerto Rico. Can we play that clip? I'm uh, moving to Puerto Rico. I was there this past week kind of scouting it out. I've been 
uh, fiending for a change. Yeah, I thought it was uh, it was more third world. <laughs> so I, I feel like people are wondering why Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. Like how random. Yeah. Taxes. It's one. It's one vertical. Yeah. It's one. So this guy is a huge influencer. Has this show that that I think the YouTube. Um, show like the the episode that he just did got like a million and a half views um this is horror i mean this is why I, I, I this is the last colony they're taxed in and out the people are fleeing the island they can't afford to live there they didn't have speaking of not having power some parts of the island didn't have power for a year and then you've got this guy who's a white bro you know moving and telling up signaling to other people Come, come to the island that we're going to continue to colonize. Um, but this is just so emblematic of like what's going on right now. Rab? It's, it's like folks saying, I'm leaving and I'm going to Canada. Um, only far worse, right? It's like, because, but, but people of color. Right, exactly. Um, it's like, oh, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're happy to have you because, you know, you're American. Um, <laughs> and we can go wherever we want. It's it's a it's a very settler me- mentality. Um, it, it is just an extension of of you know elitist white privilege. It, it's 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 pretty deplorable. Uh, and you know all of these policies were created for people like him to you know <laughs> to just continue um, uh, taking advantage. I mean that's that's what public policy. That's why we need to talk about public policy. It, it, it's not a coincidence. These choices are, are made to, you know, maximize the economic benefit uh, and security of individuals um, who are the most privileged. And you know, there's a there's a class analysis, obviously, certainly a, a, a racial analysis. And um, it, this this is not anomalous, right? We when I look at my ancestors and my ancestors who are owned by some of my ancestors, I see the land grabs um, in new territories. These were territories like Georgia land. Uh, mm-hmm. um, they're doing uh, land lotteries after the American revolution. And they're giving away 200 acre parcels yeah. that are still in the families um, of, of the white enslavers. And when they sold them and they kept moving West, they accrued more wealth at the expense of the black folk who worked that land, who created that financial wealth. So all of this is born out of really racist public policy. And uh, it's if only we had more independent media folks like you to reach wider audiences to have these conversations, because this is not what is really going to be discussed by corporate media. It's not in their best interest. And like you said, it's not their business model. Well, and, 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 you know, what's really infuriating about this, and I know you can speak to this, Arun, because this is happening in Greece, for instance, um, Spain, Portugal, but specifically Greece and Puerto Rico, uh, is that there is an extraordinary amount of debt that is owed on the island of Puerto Rico in which those tax dollars would be real mighty important to use if you want to keep that debt and not erase it, which, you know, I obviously I think the elimination of debt would be preferable. But not to mention that the money being paid into it is going to bondholders who are being represented on the fiscal oversight board of this island. And they're saying, oh, welcome in these like young crypto bros to buy up all the land, the homes that people have abandoned because they can't, they just literally leave their keys in the car at the airport and say, and write their uh, their, their banks and say, keys to the house are in the car on the wheel, uh, take the house. I'm, 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 I mean, that's what's happening. That, that's the reality of what's happening. It happened in Greece as well, um, a little bit different, but. 
a run. I mean, it point, look, and I don't want to get out over the handlebars here because as you very well know, having spent time on the island, like statehood is not a clear cut issue. It is not statehood is a ever... right. Let me make it very clear so everyone knows. Statehood yeah, party yeah, is the right wing racist party. So for, for folks who don't understand this, the neoliberals on the island are even against statehood. It is a right wing racist. And the reason why it became a democratic issue is because Tom Perez cut a deal with statehood contingents to get the vote for the DNC chairmanship. It is a right wing, like you go to the island, you say you're for statehood, they're going to be like, oh, you're part of the racist uh, uh, religious right? It's the Ted Cruz party. Sorry, I don't mean to. <laughs> no, but it's not clear. If you thought about it, you'd think it was like probably a movement, nice kids, Bernie Kratz, they're probably the one, and it's just not what it is. But, the, but so that is not what I'm talking about, but there is an issue of self-determination here. Yes. And there is on top of the moral and racial and historical issues that Rep. Rab is bringing up, there is also a constitutional issue, which is like, what do you do with when you do these land grabs, you end up with people who aren't represented. And that's not the way our system is even supposed to work at its best, which it, which it rarely does. But here, we're not even starting from the beginning of that. And so, it's, and so you see what happens when people don't have any representation. There's no one even, forget, forget the solutions on Puerto Rico. People don't even know what it is. They don't know if it's part of America. Our president, our former president Trump, seemed extremely confused on the issue of, of the status. Well, he of knew. He went there. He tried to get a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> he was very familiar with what was going on. He just chose not to care. It, it's just you know the the amount. I think people do not realize that this is a place that is our country, is our responsibility. These are our fellow citizens. And we better start treating them like it. Like it is just unbelievable. The, I mean, what happens and what is happening? And I don't see an easy solution to it. And I don't see where the help is going to come from. And I don't see what's going to stop Bitcoin billionaires from buying up the place. I don't. I don't see it. Tell me something hopeful. I mean, they could end Act Twenty and Act Twenty Two to start with. That would be great. Eliminating debt to begin with. That would be great. But I mean, this is what it, it's. It's. It's one thing if you're going to set up these acts to bring in. Ta uh, what uh, to to bring in businesses like if you're going to come you know they, they basically what it is is they have to live on the island for like 163 or 73 days whatever it is a year um live on the island buy pro property but there's really not much i mean there's a couple things it, there's it's it's not about regenerating the island and making the island's economy self-sufficient and and investing in the community so the community can build up and small business whatever it is they're not even they're not even bringing in big business anymore like the pharmaceutical industry which is problematic but at least it, at least there's some jobs attached to it it's these are just guys who want to buy it's a real estate deal it is and these you are need real someone who'll stick those things in big bills you know this is how you do it when you're from wyoming or you're from someplace else is a big big old stimulus bill is coming through and you get it plugged in there but puerto rico has no one to make that case and exactly. so right and, and that's the irony right because you're talking about um an island that has more people than you know some states that are represented in the u.s oh, yeah. senate of which you know puerto rico way is more. not right <laughs> way more right yeah. and you look at the the 57 um uh senators uh who voted for impeachment I think there's 75, they represent 75 million more than the 43 yeah. who didn't. Um, so when we talk about representation and a participatory democracy, I mean, these, these are idle words uh, uh, representing an enfeebled institution. 
that does not do justice for all the people it's supposed to represent, which includes our territories. If, that, if it's not a U.S. territory, that's one thing. We could say we, need, we owe more to the, the nation of Haiti, which I believe we do. I mean, we've, I mean, we've wrecked so many economies and societies um, with our uh, racist, imperialist foreign policy. But when you're talking about your own U.S. territories, we have a responsibility. And, you know, it, it, it is deplorable for all the re reasons you mentioned. It's, it's become an economic opportunity for some of the most elite people on this, on this planet um, to exploit uh, because of the status of the island. And, you know, and just as my gentle regular reminder to folks, um, the island's only representative of Congress right now who does not have a vote, vote is a Republican, is a Trump Republican, was part of Trump for 2020 official campaign. Uh, the current governor is a Republican. The last governor was a Republican, and he had to step down. So this is not an island that you suddenly think if it's a state, there's going to be two senators uh, and a Congress member that are Democrats because you've had more Republicans as governors of Puerto Rico than you've had Democrats. Um, so this is, you know... I believe there's a bill, uh, Media Velasquez, Representative Media Velasquez and AOC uh, have a bill in Congress right now to set up a convention to really, I think, partly to educate people about this issue, um, because it has become a hot issue in which people want the island of Puerto Rico to become a state. And it's, that in itself is very colonial uh, to just assume that they want to be a state. You know, this is a, it's an island that speaks only Spanish for the most part. I think 30 percent are bilingual. Uh, government is is conducted in Spanish. They have their own culture. They say it's their own country on the island. But furthermore, I think this 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 guy, Logan Paul, um, is just emblematic of like white privilege and colonial mentality that we that's infused, as you say, Rev Rab, infused into our our culture and, and we're indoctrinated and don't even know it half the time. So all right guys, always a pleasure. A run chowdery from Berlin, Rep Rab, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia. Uh, thanks for the rapid fire panel today. Uh, I'm going to do some shout outs to folks and I got to head out. I apologize everybody for the shorter show today, but thank you to everyone. We'll see you next week guys. Oh wait. And can I say this next Wednesday, a run is going to be filling in for me. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be fun. able to make the show. So he's going to, he's going to test, test the hosting position. <laughs> awesome. It'll be good. It'll be good. Yeah. yeah I can't wait. All right. Some shout outs, guys. All right. Uh, hey, if you don't already know, go check out our friends over at uh, Clickbaity Political Thirst Trap. Go check out their YouTube. You just put that in the search bar and you can find them. Um, dear friends, they've been great. I've been on the show. Really enjoy their conversations. Uh, fiery, spicy, great, great, great conversations. Go be, you know, I feel like we're allies of their show and vice versa. So go check out Clickbaity Political Thirst Trap. They just launched. And then Prairie Fire, Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you for the coffee. Appreciate it. Uh, John F. McDropout. If Trump has taught us anything, it might be that it's hard to press a president who is rambling and incoherent. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, Professor Harvey K., who was on the show today, also was in the live chat. So thank you for joining before and after the show. Uh, and Mario Q., thank you for working the algorithms. We do appreciate that. And all of our mods. On YouTube, Bob C, Chokin, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel. And over at Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Our Means, Nug Wrangler. Thank you for keeping these live chats troll-free. And as we said before, mods, we got a couple of emails from you. Thank you. Send us your addresses. We can send you some swag, uh, some, you know, a mug, a bag, some stickers. Send it over uh, at thenomikishow at gmail.com. All right, everybody, I'm out. Thank you for everything. Stay in solidarity. We'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. <laughs>